Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, and, uh, and a very warm welcome to Green Templeton College at St Anne's. Um, special thanks to the principal and fellows of St Anne's for their assistance while our own lecture theatre is being refurbished and refitted as part of the college's advanced study centre project. And I'm very pleased to be able to report that that project is now well underway and will be completed, touch wood, by September. Tonight is the first of four Green Templeton College lectures for 2013. As many of you know, the college has a tradition of raising significant questions in these annual series relevant to our mission of understanding and enhancing human welfare and then getting key figures to help us to answer them. Uh, this year's question is how to feed a better future. And I can't imagine anybody better qualified than Professor Sir Gordon Conway to get us started. Gordon, as many of you know, is one of the world's leading agricultural ecologists. And he's currently leading the Agriculture for Impact program from Imperial College. Uh, he's had a stellar career in science, in public policy, in education and development, including as Ford Foundation representative in India, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sussex, where he and I worked together on founding a medical school, uh, President of the Rockefeller Foundation, Chief Scientific Advisor to DFID, and President of the Royal Geographical Society. In addition to his major achievements in science and policy, which included at one stage shaming Monsanto into terminating development of the Terminator gene, uh, Gordon has come out with two hugely influential books, the Double Green Revolution came out in 1997, and One Billion Hungry, Can We Feed the World, came out last October. I can tell you that this latest book is Bill Gates's must-read book for this year. And Gordon has chosen the same title for his lecture tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Sir Gordon Conway. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's nice to see some familiar faces in the audience, but particularly good to be here with David because he and I worked really very closely together when I was running the University of Sussex and he was running the University of Brighton. And as he said, the, the medical school, which is doing extremely well, came out of uh, the two of us working in that way and there were other things that happened at Sussex and at Brighton that were... Uh, the fruits of our labours. We both got on very well, we thought the same way, and it was one of those partnerships which has not actually been that common between what you might call new universities and old universities, except we were both new universities. Um, I've walked all the way over here without the thing <laughs> we, uh, we faced three big problems at the moment. One of them is recurring food price spikes. The second is the fact that there's about a billion people hungry in the world. And the third is that we've got to increase food production by somewhere between 70 and 100% by 2050. Those are the food price spikes. Um, and you can see the latest one, which we're in at the moment, although it's coming down, uh, notice in particular that the soybeans, which is the black line, 
This is a record price for soybeans in the world. And I'll explain why soybeans are so expensive these days. Uh, you can do hundreds of PhDs on why we have food price spikes. So if any of you are really at a loss and would like to <laughs> find something interesting to do, um, that will help you. The problem with the food price spikes is, of course, that they go high, and in developing countries they tend to stay high. They don't come back down again in the way that they do internationally. And the problem is that poor people spend often half of their income or even more on food. So they're the ones that are really affected. Everybody in this room may grumble a bit, but these people grumble because their stomachs grumble. They starve because of this. And they react to it. And interestingly, that graph at the bottom right is a number of riots as a function of the food price spikes. And that was one in Mozambique a couple of years ago. It played a bit of a role at the beginning of the Arab Spring. It wasn't a major factor, but in Tunisia in particular, it did spark things. Secondly, we've got about a billion people hungry. There's a lot of arguments for how many there actually are. FAO has revised it so there's 870 million, but it, you know, a billion here or there is about right. And as you can see, most of them are in, in sub-Saharan Africa, with some in South Asia. The worst statistic here is the number of children under five who are malnourished. 180 million children are stunted in the sense that their growth is stunted. They are below height for their weight, for their age. It's an appalling indictment on the world that we've got 180 million children like that. And because they, their development is arrested, many of them get very ill, many of them die. Many of them go blind and so on. And then the third challenge is the fact that we have got to feed this growing world. And there's a complete master's course there laid out on the screen. There are problems of demand and problems of supply. Most people tend to think of this as being the problem that arises from population growth. People say, oh, it's because the population is growing that we've got to produce so much more food. But actually, that's not the biggest challenge. The population is growing at about 2% per annum, and food production is growing about 2% per annum. In other words, if it was just bodies, as it were, that we were trying to feed, we could do it. The big problem is this. Per capita incomes are going up all around the world, even in Africa. And as per capita incomes go up, people's diet changes. They shift from their traditional diets towards a more, in quotes, Western diet. They eat chips and crisps. They eat hamburgers. They eat hot dogs. They eat a whole range of livestock products. And the problem there is that if you eat a livestock product, the livestock itself has got to have eaten grain of one kind or another. Very crudely, 
this is very crude, you need about 8 kilos of grain for every kilo of meat. It depends, of course, on the livestock system. So one of the reasons why soybean prices are so high is because of the Chinese demand for soybean. Last year, China signed an agreement with Ukraine giving them a loan of $3 billion in return for providing 6 million tons of grain to China. I was in Iowa recently, and the farmers there, incredibly good farmers, they're producing 11 tons of maize per hectare, which is phenomenal. Very high yields of soybean. And the soybean, I said, where's it go? He said, well, it goes to the railhead, and from the railhead it goes out to the Pacific West Coast, and from there it goes to China. There's also, of course, a big demand for biofuels, and you can see what's happening there, uh, with the projections in terms of both ethanol and biodiesel. You've got problems now because land that will grow corn, will grow corn for human food, or corn for animal feed, or corn for sugar, or corn for ethanol. And so there are competing needs for corn, and the rising corn prices Cause corn being maize, of course, in our language, but rising corn prices means a knock-on for other crops. And there are also problems of supply. And as into the future, we're going to see even more problems of supply because of climate change. You can see on the left here the increase in growing period. The decrease in growing period, sorry. About a 5% reduction in growing period for all those red areas by uh, 2050. But it's already beginning to happen. I was in northern Ghana just recently, and the rains came a month late, and they finished a month early. So there was only 100 days there to grow a rice crop, and there were only very few varieties you could do it in that time. And the other problem is just heat over there. And it's the heat above 30 degrees. Some of you may remember heat above 30 degrees <laughs> outside. <laughs> They've done, looked at a whole lot of, uh, of experiments. And it turns out that for every degree day above 30 degrees, you lose 1.7% of yield. So in fact, if you've got a day when it's 31 degrees, you lose 1.7% of your yield. If it's 32 degrees, you lose 3.4%. Uh, uh, and so on. And if you've got two consecutive days above 30 degrees by a, a, a degree, you'll lose 3.4%. And so on in that way. This is a huge amount of loss as a result. 30 degrees turns out to be quite a magic number in terms of of biological organisms. Human beings too. Human death rates go up dramatically when the temperatures go above 30 degrees. And in addition to these stresses that come out of climate change, out of global warming, you've also got the big shocks that occur. This is the 2010-11 shock, the great heat wave in Russia, the great floods in Pakistan, which were the result of a single weather phenomenon. We're going to get more of that happening. 
What happened this last year was the great drought in the United States, which was the worst since 1936, and a huge drought in South America. Both of those resulting in increases in, in corn and other crops and the prices, which is what began the food price spike that we're in at the moment. So all these different things are coming together, and we have to tackle all of these if we're going to feed the world. And how we're going to do that is what I'm really going to talk about. Not about the individual details of this, but how we're going to do it. The book, which um, there's a copy lying down there, uh, and you're welcome, of course, to buy it. <laughs> Not that one, but anyway. Um, basically says there are four routes forward. One is innovation. One is markets, one is people, and one is political leadership. And these are the four routes towards food security. Innovation. Innovation is crucial. And it can be indigenous innovation. Or it can be innovation that comes in from outside. And in some cases, it's a combination of both. That's what you're seeing here. Uh, Africa didn't invent the mobile phone. But when they got mobile phones, they invented all kinds of ways, Africans did, to make use of mobile phones. They're far ahead of we in the United Kingdom in terms of how they use mobile phones. I mean, they've got complete banking systems. If you're a Maasai warrior and you're bringing your cattle down to Nairobi, you will phone ahead and you'll sell the animals on your phone and you'll get a deposit for the animals back and when you get to Nairobi, you do the final negotiations. They bank with the mobile phone and many other things too. Let's talk about the reality on the ground. This is a lady called Mrs. Namarunda. She doesn't exist. She's been made up, but she's quite a good example of a woman, in this case in, in Western Kenya. She's, her husband's dead. She's got a son who... Uh, lives in Nairobi, does all kinds of things, but will turn up for a photo opportunity, which is what he's doing there. And she's got four little children. She's got a hectare of land, very bad land, and that's what she struggles with. And she's got seed that will produce about two tons, of, say two tons of maize per hectare or two tons of other crops. Uh, which is quite good. But along come weeds, along come pests, along comes drought, and she gets less than one ton. If she gets less than one ton from a hectare, she can't feed her children. And so they starve and get sick. And she's got no money to buy medicines for them. The soil is highly eroded, as you can see there, lacking in nutrients. She gets all kinds of pests and diseases, cassava with the mosaic virus and the mealybugs, bananas with a new wilt disease that's come in just recently and uh, simply kills the bananas, and a terrible disease called black cigatoga, which came into Kenya about uh, 20 years ago. <coughs> a terrible weed called striger, witch weed, which causes billions of dollars of damage in Africa. And of course, finally, drought. So all of those are what she deals with every day. 
And that's why she only gets less than a ton. And the goal, of course, is to get it up. To get seed will produce at least three tons. To improve the fertility. <coughs> to control the weeds and the pests and the, and the drought. And so that she ends up at the end with two tons per hectare. Which means on half her land, on half the hectare, she can grow one ton. And feed the family. And then the other half of the hectare, she can grow some other crops, like bananas or whatever and get some income. And with the income, of course, she could buy extra food that she might need. She could buy medicines. And she can send her children to school because she needs money to send them to school. Poor farmers need money. They need food, but they also need money. And it's getting both of those together that is difficult. Now, we're in a situation where we don't have much more new land. But in general, we don't have new land. So if we're going to double food production by 2050, we've got to use the existing land. So we have to intensify our production. And if we do that, we've got to do it in a way that's sustainable. We have to produce more with less and we've got to have a smaller environmental footprint. And in very simple terms, this is what sustainable intensification is. Increasing yields or production on the same amount of land with less water, less pesticides, less fertilizers, less emissions of greenhouse gases. That's in particular the gases from agriculture, nitrous oxide and uh, methane. And at the same time, build up the natural capital. Build up the natural protection that you have in the environment. For example, protection against flooding, protection against tsunamis. Build up the natural enemies that will control the pests. And you also have to be resilient. So that when these big shocks come along, maybe it's a climate change shock, maybe it's a political or uh, military shock, maybe it's a big economic shock, that your farmer will still be able to survive. And that is an incredibly tall order. It's orders of magnitude greater than the challenge of the old Green Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. And it's going to need all the ingenuity we can muster and in particular it's going to need all the options, the technological options on the table so if we think about what is available for farmers, there are traditional techniques there are intermediate techniques, there are conventional techniques and there are new platform technologies and part of the argument is the book that all of those have got a role to play in the right place at the right time you should stop being wedded to one of these as being the Holy Grail. Here's a good example. This is called microdosing. You take a top of a Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola or whatever kind of cola you like to drink and fill it with fertilizer. And you put that in the hole with the seed of the maize so in that way you get the fertiliser exactly where it's 
meant to go. And you aren't spreading it all across the land. It's an example of precision farming. Farmers here in Britain do precision farming. They work out across their farm what each small piece of land, even what a small piece of field needs in terms of fertilizer. And it's programmed into the, the tractor as it goes around. And they'd use uh, GIS systems so the tractor knows exactly where it is. And the tractor releases the fertilizer in exactly the right place. That's a highly sophisticated engineering approach, but this, in a sense, is a similar approach uh, with a, a lower level of, of technology. There's another example here, this terrible weed called Striger. It looks very beautiful, but just to remind you that not all things beautiful are good. <coughs> there are two ways that they're tackling this Striger. One of them is to grow a legume called desmodium between the maize crops and the top right the woman has got that and that desmodium actually does uh, deter the striker and kills it off but they've also discovered well not discovered they, they, they bred a new maize variety that's resistant to a herbicide called imesopyr Imazapir will kill the striker, but it also kills the maize. So now we've got a maize plant that is, it's a mutant produced by tissue culture, by conventional means. It's resistant to the imazapir. So what happens is they are dipping the seeds in the imazapir. And as the plant grows, the imazapir comes out of the plant as it's growing and kills the nearby striker and will clear it away. But again, you're not spreading huge amounts of herbicide all over the land. You're using very specific small amounts of herbicide in the right place and at the right time. There are really two kinds of intensification here that I want to talk about. One is ecological. That is using ecological processes because you need to remember the fact that when you look at a farm field, even though it's human-made, it's also an ecological system. Many of the ecological processes that were there naturally before the farmer came are still there, and you can exploit them and augment them. There's an example. Uh, he's growing, in Kenya, he's growing maize interspersed with a legume, soybean or whatever, and the trick is to grow two rows of maize and two rows of legume and then two rows of maize because you get the competition at the right level there. And they can get five tons of maize and one ton of legume off a system like that. Another example which people will know about is the home garden of Java. Around the little houses, little farmhouses, there are these incredible gardens usually managed by the women in the house, with great trees, coconuts and citrus, and all kinds of bushes and herbs and medicines, and little pond and fish and, and ducks running around and chickens and everything else. It's, for an ecologist, it's, uh, it's a bit like heaven. And that's a, an extraordinarily human-managed ecological system. And 
what we're trying to do is to make sure that these kinds of systems are translated elsewhere in the world. Bottom right there, a woman in Ethiopia uh, in one of the government resettlements <coughs> surrounded by a desert around her house. Another example is what's called conservation farming. Uh, here in Britain we tend to plough the land. We think ploughing is a good thing. Uh, and in Africa there's been a long tradition of ploughing plowing the land. Uh, this is in, Zemba, in Zambia where there's been a great deal of ploughing. And now what people are doing is instead of ploughing they simply cut down the maize after it's been harvested take the cobs off and lay it on the ground and then dig little holes through the field. And that's where they plant the seed, often using microdosing. And in that way you can get very good yields. He's getting, or he and she are getting seven tons per hectare of maize there, new hybrid varieties. The great advantage is that it preserves the soil and conserves moisture and there's a lot of it going on in Britain now in fact I was talking to a, a, a big farmer in East Anglia and I was sort of giving a little lecture about conservation farming and he said just a minute he said I do that now he said quite large areas in Britain if it's not too heavy clay are able to do conservation farming one of the most remarkable systems is this one it's a tree called Phytherbia it used to be called an acacia but it's now called Phytherbia and it has the extraordinary habit of shedding its leaves in the wet season now, most trees put leaves on in the wet season it sheds the tree leaves in the wet season and so you can grow maize underneath this is maize under the trees the trees are legged so you can get three tons per hectare of, of, of maize under those trees. But what is even more remarkable is that they put carbon back down in the soil. The falling leaves in the, uh, in the, in the wet season incorporated in the ground. You can get up to a couple of tons of carbon per hectare. These ecological approaches, the drawback is they often take a lot of skill. And in many cases they can take a lot of labour. Not necessarily always a lot of labour. But they often do take a lot of labour. And they have to be complemented by plant breeding and by animal breeding. <laughs> We have to have new varieties of crops and new breeds of animals if we're going to meet this target of doubling food production. We need new crops that will uh, produce more carbohydrate and protein, will produce more micronutrients, vitamin A and iron and zinc, because of all those children who are malnourished, more resilient to pests and diseases and climate change, and more efficient at converting sunlight to food and taking up nitrogen from the atmosphere and more efficient at using water. The holy grail, the holy grail out there is to get cereal crops like maize and wheat and rice, barley, to fix nitrogen the same way as legumes do. 
People have been struggling with this for years, but it looks more likely now because we now know how it is that the bacteria that take the nitrogen from the atmosphere and pass it over to the plant, how they've got to be in close association with these plants. We know the evolution of that process. So the trick now is to try and make that happen again. It's one of those goals that's of interest not only to, as it were, conventional plant breeders, but also to people who are using organic approaches to agriculture. Because that would be a tremendous boost for organic agriculture if you could get crops to fix their own nitrogen. Here's an example of a new crop. Um, it's a rice. It's a cross between the African rice species and the Asian rice species. And Monty Jones is a great plant breeder from Sierra Leone and he was trying to get these two to cross together and you can do it but it's very difficult to get the two species to cross. You can get an embryo out of them but you then got to culture in the tissue and he'd been struggling with this and he couldn't do it and he came to us at Rockefeller and said I can't get this to work, what shall I do? And so we said why don't you go to China, they'll know how to do it. So we bought him an airfare and he went to China and the Chinese said, oh yes, it's easy. They said, you put coconut oil in the mixture. So he put coconut oil in the mixture and it worked. <laughs> I think it cost us about, you know, $700 and we got a new crop of, of, of rice. Now here it is now. And many people from Asia, some people from Asia here in the room will say, what are those Africans doing in a nation rice field? It's not a nation rice field, it's in Uganda. Look at those tremendously heavy uh, heads of, of rice. And basically, the new varieties are like African varieties to begin with. They, uh, they are resistant to uh, pests and diseases in many ways. They, they swamp out the weeds. And as they grow up, they become more like Asian varieties and produce high yields. So that's one of the new... Uh, crops that's come into Africa in recent years. There's also nutritive foods. Um, sweet potatoes. We, uh, we were in, my wife and I were in Mozambique uh, uh, a couple of months ago and after the, the big civil war there uh, they distributed a lot of, of sweet potato because it's a, it's, a, it, it's a very hardy crop and you can get a, a good uh, meal out of it. Um, but the white one on the top there doesn't have vitamin A in it. And what they've done is to introduce orange flesh sweet potatoes that have got the vitamin A in and they're crossing them and producing new varieties that are not only uh, very nutritious, also resistant to drought. All of that is being done uh, in Mozambique by the Mozambique authorities. It's a really great success story. One of the troubles is that in some crops, the genes aren't present. The genes for vitamin A, for example, aren't present in the crop. So in rice, on the left there, there are no genes in, in the crop that you can put into the grain. 
And so what's happened is that they've genetically engineered rice, it's now called golden rice, to have high levels of vitamin A in it, and that's going to be available in the next couple of years. And there's now some work even going on on golden bananas. I was in Uganda recently, and I went into a field of bananas at the research station, and I looked at the bananas and said, what on earth are you doing? And they said, ah, they said, that's golden bananas. We put the same genes in it as has been put in rice. So they're experimenting with golden bananas. The problem is that if you make them too gold, they don't do any photosynthesis, so you've got to get the right balance. There are all kinds of potentials into the future as we begin to understand what genes can and can't do. One of the worst problems we face in Africa in particular is drought. There's a lot of conventional breeding going on to improve drought tolerance. But people are also looking at specific genes. And this gene is called a chaperone gene, which they've discovered. Basically what it does is this. When a plant is stressed, when a cell is stressed, the proteins in the cell misfold. They don't fold properly. And so the cell dies. But with this gene, it'll get them to refold back correctly. So in a sense, it's a resilience gene. And that's what we're looking for now in so many other areas. Okay, so those are the technologies that are needed for sustainable intensification. But we have to complement that with socioeconomic intensification, which is mostly particularly if you can spell intensification, it's mostly about markets. <laughs> intensification, it's all right. Um, and the essence here again is this, that we tend to sometimes romanticise small farmers. And there's even organizations that say that farmers shouldn't be involved in markets. They should just be feeding themselves and their neighbors. But it ignores the fact that farmers need money. They need money for education. They need money for health. They need money for extra food. They are in the private sector. But they tend to be very poorly linked to markets. Although here's a great local market. And there are two kinds of markets. One are input markets and the other are output markets. The problem with input markets, which is where you get your seed and your fertilizer, your pesticide, your microcredit or whatever, is that the shops that sell them are miles away from where you are and they often come in great big quantities and they cost a lot of money. So there's a need to provide a a much more farmer-friendly source of inputs. Uh, top left there, the man in the, is my grandfather, who well, ran the co-op in Snodland in Kent, and went round the farms in his horse and cart, selling the inputs. This goes down in Africa. This goes down extraordinarily well. Everybody thinks, <laughs> everybody thinks I've got a proper pedigree here. <laughs> and um, and there's a modern what we call agro dealer. A woman who's selling seed and fertilizer in little shops. And these little shops are all over now. There are thousands of them in East Africa that have been created in the last few years. So farmers can go and buy the seed that they want. 
The most important thing about buying the seed is that it has to be certified. The, when you buy a seed, if you buy a seed in this country for your garden, it pretty much does what it says on the packet, right? And that's a problem in developing countries. You buy a lot of rubbish. But now you're getting... And this company is called Victoria Seeds, a little company set up by a woman uh, who's still in her 40s in Uganda, the biggest uh, seed company in, in Uganda that's selling certified seed. And there are many of these little seed companies now all over Africa. And then, of course, you've got to have the outputs. You've got to find a place where you can sell your grain. And the most important point there is to have some kind of farmer association. You need some kind of coming together of farmers so that they can sell their grain and bargain for a decent price. They have to be brought together. Or they have to bring themselves together. And that's a, a small uh, seed, a, a small grain store in a village. Uh, you can bring everything in together. People know which is their own bag of grain. They know when it's going to be sold or not sold. They want to keep it. It's kept there. It is treated against pests and diseases and so on. And when they want to sell it, on the mobile phone, this is in Kenya, he can get the prices of the maize in all the little markets around. And sometimes you're in a village and there's a great big bustle and somebody's discovered that you can get an extra 10 shillings or whatever it is per bag by taking the seed about 30 miles to the west and everybody loads up a truck and takes it there. This is an example of bringing all these different activities together. The farmer in the middle there, holding some soybean, is the head of a farmer association in northern Ghana. He's, um, he's quite pleased because the Savannah Agricultural Research Institute has told him how to grow his soybean somewhat better. He's getting an extra couple of bags per, hectare, per acre for his um, soybean. They've hired some, a couple of young guys who then do the bargaining with the agrochemical company over here in the, the top right and the agro-dealers who are selling, in this case, that's the seed that's being sold, to get a good price. When he harvests the soybean, they belong to a Savannah Farmers Cooperative. They weigh it properly and then they, as a cooperative, go and bargain for the price that they're going to get. They're also building with a, a private company, a warehouse that they can store it. All of these are activities that are going on with institutions that already are half there. Wherever you go in Africa, there are the basis of institutions, but they're often not working as well as they should be, and in particular they're not interconnected. It's getting the interconnections to work, and that's what this program, which is run by the Alliance for a Green Revolution for Africa, is doing. It's bringing all these people in to a sector. And that creates what economists call an enabling environment. You have a farmer in the middle in a farmer association. You've got one of those agro-dealers out there and they're getting 
seed from a seed company, fertilizer from a local fertilizer company. They're getting microcredit from banks. Big banks can't give microcredit because the transaction costs are so high. But big banks, I mean, people like Standard and Charter and Barclays Bank and so on, are now providing lots of money for small farmers, but they don't provide it directly. It goes through these agro-dealers. And then, when you've got the product, it goes to local traders, it goes out to national trade or regional trade and so on. All that system works, and in particular because of connectivity, of which there's two kinds of connectivity. One is physical infrastructure, roads in particular, and the other is soft infrastructure, ICT, mobile phones. That's what brings it all together. If you get that to work, it all begins to happen. Thirdly, you need people. People are crucial. We've got about half a billion small farmers in the world. That's half a billion farmers with less than two hectares. And we know that that's where a great deal of the food is going to be produced for at least for the next 20 years or so. They're the key to producing the food that's going to be necessary for feeding poor people. And the more that you get the... Perhaps I can even try this. Yes. If you get greater yields, farmers become more prosperous. No. Farmers become more prosperous. More wage labour, less hunger... And the rural economy starts to grow. There's more rural employment, roads and markets and so on around here. If you get it right, you can increase agricultural production in such a way as to get the cycle of growth in the rural economy. Now, of course, that doesn't happen in isolation. It's linked into the urban economy. And in fact, the link to the urban economy is absolutely crucial in making this happen. And of course... Women are important in all of this. A great many of the farmers in Africa in particular are women. And women are important because they're not just farmers, they're also mothers. So they don't just grow nutritious crops, they make sure that their children eat nutritious crops. They're also innovators and they're also educators. The real danger, of course, is trying to put too much on the shoulders of women. Uh, very many interventions go in there and say, oh, the women can do this, and then you discover that you've got women doing 101 different things that they can't cope with in these situations. But they are critical in agricultural development. And I'll just give you a little um, encyclopedia of uh, some prominent African women the woman at the top right there is one of the leading biotechnology scientists in Africa. And um, I, was, uh, I was giving a talk in, in Rwanda. And I put a picture up. I put that picture up and said, this is one of the leading African biotechnologists. Tell me you were there. And, and, and the whole audience sort of erupted with laughter. And I thought, I'm not sure that's a very funny thing at all. And... Uh, then they all started pointing down to the front. I looked down the front and she was sat there. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing here, Defrose? And she said, I'm the Minister of Agriculture. <laughs> well, in that picture is her in a 
Biotechnology Lab in Uganda. And at Rockefeller, we'd given her funds to get some more training because we thought she was Ugandan, but she wasn't. She was Rwandan. And so she went down to Rwanda. And I told President Kagame this. He said, yeah, very good. He said, industrial espionage. <laughs> <laughs> and there, a young Ugandan woman, and she's got a petri dish there, and she said to me, this is a few months ago, do you know what's in that petri dish? And she said, it's double haploid cassava. Now, I'm not going to try and explain what double haploid cassava is, but it's the basis for breeding of cassava. And she said, I think I'm the first person in the world to have ever produced it. And I think there's a paper coming out on it soon. Um, top left is, is uh, Josephine Ocker. She's an Achari woman from northern Uganda. She created Victoria Seeds. She's a brilliant businesswoman. Uh, and transform agricultural production in Uganda. And the bottom left there is uh, a wonderful woman called Maria Andrade, who uh, comes from the um, the, the um, Cape Verde Islands, and she's been the pioneer of orange fresh sweet potatoes. She's a brilliant agronomist, a brilliant plant breeder, but she's also, which of course is rare in combination, a great publicist. And so she drives around in orange uh, um, Land Rovers. She usually wears orange, and when my wife and I turned up to meet her, she insisted that I had to, we had to take the, put new orange um, T-shirts and caps and everything else on to make it happen. These are just examples of, of women scientists, women technologists making a difference in Africa. And then finally, I come to the end, political leadership. None of this will happen without political leadership. And that means political leadership in the West. Uh, President Obama has done a great job there, and we expect to see more of this in the next uh, uh, four years. Uh, we've had good leadership here in Britain, and in particular, the Prime Minister has been pushing hard on, on child malnutrition, <coughs> but also political leadership in Africa itself. This is um, John Kifor, who was the president of Ghana from 2002 to 2009, who did a fantastic job of First of all, creating the right environment for agricultural production, making it possible for people to invest, making it possible for all these agro-dealers and seed companies to come in and make a difference. Focus partly, of course, on, on cocoa, but also on basic crops like, like uh, cassava and yams. And you can see what happened. That, sorry, he, he, he wasn't... He was president from 1992 to, to 98, I think, it was in the middle period there. Growth in agriculture in, in uh, Ghana was 5% per annum. Some of you may remember when economists used to grow at 5% per annum. They're growing at 5% per annum in Africa. Uh, quite a bit of it is agriculture. It's not just about minerals and oil. And most important, when you look there at the orange line, the orange bars. That's child malnutrition. 
which in 1988 was 30%, and by 2008 is down to 17%. Ghana is going to be the only country that achieves the Millennium Development Goal of halving poverty and halving hunger by 2015. And it's because of that political leadership. So, in the end, what I'm saying is we actually know what to do. There are examples of where this notion of sustainable intensification works, but they're often on a small scale in particular circumstances. The trick is to make things work at scale. To get whole countries to go in the way that Ghana has. Um, thank you. Uh, the website that I suggest is something called www.canwefeedtheworld.org which is linked to the book and basically it gets updated every week with new blogs, new articles that bring the book up to date. So if you like, you can just look at that which is for free and then buy the book. <laughs> if you think you'd like to know all the other things that are in there. Thank you very much.